Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Okay, so before I get to my guest today, I want to talk about a few things that I have been watching this week, um, really over the weekend. Some great content. I had a great content weekend. Um, I watched the first four episodes of a show called Losing Alice on Apple. It is an Israeli series, but they don't tell you that. So at first you're like, why is everything out of sync? It's because unlike Netflix, it automatically goes to dub mode on Apple Plus. So you have to kind of adjust your settings if you're like me and you don't do dubbing. So I watched it in Hebrew with the English subtitles and I really like it. It's sort of like a psychological thriller. Really well done. Can't wait to continue it this weekend. I think a new episode drops every Friday. Also love Search Party. I think I've talked about it before on HBO Max. Um, I love the show. It's in its fourth season now. Um, it's, a, it's a little crazy this season. It's gone off the rails a little bit, but I'm still enjoying it. It's just sort of like the perfect mix of just great writing and um, a good story. And you sort of never know which way it's going to go. Um, and great actors. I'm sort of enjoying The Sister on Hulu. It's like another, I'm in these like sort of dark psychological thriller series now, I guess. Um, again, first three episodes, I believe, maybe three or four dropped on Hulu. And then it's a weekly drop type of situation, I believe. Um, it's an English series. So uh, I won't tell you what it's about, but the first, see, the first episode's kind of a slog, but then it gets kind of interesting. I'm, I'm into it. And I did finally watch the movie Promising Young Woman, which you can get on Amazon or on demand anywhere. It's $20, but I thought well worth the money. I really was blown away by it. Um, I won't spoil it. There's a lot of dialogue about it online. Most people seem to be blown away by it as I was, but definitely some people did not like it. So uh, I'm curious um, what you think. So to that end, uh, I do get people that DM me if I don't know you already, uh, which is, you know, I don't know a lot of my listeners. So if uh, I'm always available, I read all my DMs on Instagram at Reality Eliza, and I usually try to respond. And I do appreciate the feedback or questions or whatever you guys send me. Somebody told me when I was complaining on my end of year podcast that I can't watch Apple Plus on my Roku, only on my computer. They said, oh no, Apple Plus has been available on Roku for two years or a year or whatever. Well, guess what? Not on my model. So on the newer models, yes, but not on my model. So my question is to my listeners, since I can't seem to figure this out online, is there a way for me to watch Apple Plus on my old devices? Is there, other than buying the Apple TV box, is there like a fire stick or some kind of workaround that I could do? Because I really hate watching shows on my computer. I really like watching them on the big screen. So I ask you audience, please let me know if there's something I'm missing. So today on the podcast, I'm excited to have Ricky Stern. So Ricky is a very prolific director who uh, I first heard about way back, I guess about a year or two ago, uh, when I had Elliot Goldberg on the podcast talking about the Preppy Murder uh, series for AMC. And uh, Ricky directed that, and, and I've been following her and her work uh, longer than I knew, actually. She um, she's right now has an incredible series on Netflix called Surviving Death which I really enjoyed. And we, we really dig into that mostly, but we also talk about the AMC series and Surviving Jeffrey Epstein for Lifetime, uh, which she also directed. 
And and one of my favorite documentaries ever that um, that Ricky directed uh, about Joan Rivers called A Piece of Work. Um, Ricky is a Manhattanite. She reminded me of, she made me homesick for New York in the pandemic. Um, we really get into a lot of sort of the filmmaking in this latest Netflix series. And of course, I ask her a lot about her own beliefs because life after death is some some serious business, uh, not for the not for the faint of heart, but if you're interested in in any of that, I highly recommend it on Netflix now. Um, so hope you enjoy my chat with Ricky. Hi, Ricky. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy that you're here. Uh, I always start my podcast by saying how I met my guests. So we're only just meeting each other, but we were introduced by Elliot Goldberg, who is a good friend of mine. And I know he's been talking about you since the preppy killer uh, documentary that you did for AMC. And he actually came on my pod uh, to talk about it way back and had high praise for you and Anne, uh, Annie, who's your co-director. Yes. Can I, it, it's the preppy murder. The preppy, preppy murder. murder. Uh, yes. Oh my God. You know what? I was reading from, I cut and pasted from your website and is it I wrong said, on my website? Well, no, it's right. <laughs> but I'm looking at preppy killer in quotes. And then the next line is quote unquote preppy murder. So, uh, yes, I stand corrected. I'm sorry. The preppy murder death in Central Park was the name of the doc. It's still available for people to see if they haven't seen it. Right. Yes, it's a series on AMC um, on um, Sundance, on the Sundance channel on AMC. Great. Well, I definitely want to talk about that a little later, but I'm excited to talk to you about your latest work, which is Surviving Death on Netflix. It's a six-part series, as I said in my intro. Um, Really, I was, look, I'm definitely a captive audience on this one because this is something that I've always been interested in. And I did a series with the medium years ago and have always sort of been a believer uh, however, I was not a believer in reincarnation until I saw your series. So before we get into the deep dive on it, I would love to hear, um, was this your creation? Were you a gun for hire to direct? Like, how did it come to you? So the the series is based on a book called Surviving Death, same name, by Leslie Kane, who is a I'm an investigative journalist who I've known for years and who had written a book about UFOs that um, Annie, my film partner, and I uh, had made into a two-hour special for the History Channel. So I, I had um, I knew Leslie's work and I read her book. And uh, I am not a captive audience. I am what people call a skeptic. I am not like you know someone who never went to a medium, wasn't that interested. But her book is really fascinating, and it is a, a, a look at the subject, this notion of consciousness living outside the body, the physical, or life going on after the physical body dies, that you know she explores through scientists and researchers and doctors in the fields of various fields who have studied this and are continuing to study it. And so her take on it, I thought was really, really interesting. And I then developed it and brought it to Netflix and Netflix was very interested and decided to do it. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. I think your, your point about sort of grounding it in science um, was really important, I think, especially to win over people like you who are skeptics, because, you know, look, I think anecdotally, there's so many powerful stories that you cover that I think could make somebody a believer. But when you do ground it 
in data and science, I do think it gives it a weight that feels different than just like some tinfoil hat thing, which is what a lot of skeptics sort of think. It's like, okay, well, it's nice that you believe it. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think, you know, for me, the, the, the interesting part of it is asking the questions, being open to it. So when I say I wasn't, you know, quote unquote, a believer, it's more that I, I hadn't really thought about it much, but when I started to research uh, through Leslie's book and then started to speak to, for example, the Division of Perceptual Studies at UVA in their medical school, they have this group of doctors who've been studying this idea, this notion or phenomenon of consciousness outside the brain. And they've been studying it, whether it's through near-death experiencers or the, the work on mediums or reincarnation, they're open to it and looking at it and in a scientific way. And I thought that was really interesting. And it raises questions that I think are worth asking. And what are just some of those questions? Well, I mean, the, I guess the big question is, you know, what happens after we die? But, you know, in, in the anecdotal, in the stories that we tell, you know, there's a various phenomenons. And so, you know, in the near-death experience, I think, A, what's fascinating is that these people aren't seeking any kind of spiritual or religious or physiological experience, they die, whether they die on a, you know, on a, in a surgical procedure or they die in, in our story, going down uh, a kayaking in Chile and are kept underwater for more than 30 minutes. They come back with varied, but lots of very similar kinds of experiences. And it raises questions. Well, what happens? What happened to these people in the period when their brain was flatlined? And how could those experiences be so vivid and so life-changing? You know, was it something in the brain? And, you know, there's all kinds of people sort of poo-poo and say, oh, well, it's oxygen deprivation or, you know, chemicals they were administered in the hospital. But all these kinds of excuses or maybe, you know, rationale for these kinds of experiences, these doctors uh, have researched. And the kinds of experiences that people talk about are not ones that come on from, let's say, oxygen deprivation. So it raises questions like, okay, so then what did happen to these people? And, you know, where did they go if they went someplace? And um, and then also people who've had profound, let's say, medium experiences or signs when they had a, a lost loved one. You know, what what was that? Is that real? Did, did they did really, was there some communication um, or was that a coincidence in the case of signs when people, you know, ask their loved one to send me a sign, I'm, I'm looking for a coin with your birth date on it and you happen to find one in your shoe or something with it, you know, is that just a coincidence or was that really some kind of a sign? I mean, that coin story and then the cardinal that mm. one <laughs> blew me away <laughs> because you just think of cardinals, you know, they don't even sit still long enough for you to get a picture, let alone just kind of cuddle in your in your palm. Uh, that that really blew me away. So, I mean, there, it covers so much. And I think I'm partial. Probably I loved the series, but I think I loved the first one and the last one the best. Um, the stories just really hit me in a powerful way. I, I wanted to highlight one from the first episode with, um, I believe her name was Stephanie Arnold. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She, you know, look, I'm sure you encountered a million stories. So I guess the broader question, you know, Stephanie had this wild story where she sort of 
foresaw her death. Um, she had placenta previa when she was pregnant and basically thought, you know, this is going to end badly for me. And nobody believed her. They all thought she was crazy, including her husband. And she basically did die for 37 seconds and experienced what so many people report when they have those experiences. And then sort of retroactively discovered, I think, that she had these sort of medium powers or at least this uh, sixth sense or whatever you want to call it. How did you decide, uh, and she was a great storyteller. I understand she was a producer before. How did you decide what stories to include um, in in the series? Well, it was really important that the people felt authentic and that they, again, weren't seeking attention by, you know, having a near-death experience and just, you know, uh, but that in telling of the, their story and sharing their story, it was came from a very deep and emotional place that it was it was important for them to share their story because they wanted others to know that they weren't alone, that they weren't crazy, that they had had similar kinds of experiences. And that's felt genuine to me, both in, you know, in Stephanie Arnold and in Dr. Mary Neal, who's the, the surgeon who um, is kept underwater for more than 30 minutes when, when she was kayaking. Um, and then also the people we met at the Seattle IANS, which is the organization where people can come who've had near-death experiences and, and share their stories. You know, all the people we met there also, they're, they come from a very genuine place. And that was important to us that, you know, the audience could relate and say, and think, you know, gosh, this, you know, I believe this person, you know, maybe I don't know what that experience was, or maybe I'm not going to call it, you know, survival or whatever you want to say, but that you would actually just feel some empathy and, and, and listen to these people with an open mind. So immersing yourself in all of these stories, I'm curious if the needle shifted for you, like what, what do you believe now in terms of these near death experiences, people communicating with loved ones on the other side, the signs, what do you think? Do you think that we, that it was, that these things will happen to everybody? Is it just that we're not in tune with seeing the signs or communicating with the dead? Like, what is your take as someone that went in sort of initially skeptic after, you know, being immersed in it for so long? Well, I would, I would go sort of back a little bit further and say whether or not like this whole experience changed, you know, my beliefs or made me more convinced one way or the other, if, if life goes on. And I would say I'm probably more certain that I'm uncertain, that I don't know that I really know everything, that I really know what's out there. Um, I'm probably more open. And I think that um, certainly in, you know, you, you, if you watch the series over six episodes, there are people who are hardcore atheists going into this, who come out of various experiences, much more spiritual or religious or whatever, or hopeful. You know, it's a range of people who've had these experiences. It's not just people seeking them who are open to it. But I do think if you are open to it, if you're someone who, you know, and this is what I guess I would say I have learned, is that if you are open to receiving messages or connecting with spirit or connecting with whatever that might be that, you know, is out there that, um, you know, you, you quiet your mind and you will be more likely potentially to receive these kinds of connections. And, you know, if you look at like, um, 
if you look at meditation or different religions that get into this um, state where the mind is is quiet and the idea is and there is a belief whether it's in reincarnation with like eastern religions that that the mind whatever it is is maybe just some kind of an antenna that translates what else is out there those signals those kind of consciousness um, that it's not necessarily the brain that's producing all of it now that's just theories i'm not saying well you know you have to agree with it but that's sort of what's proposed um and and how this all works essentially i know when we were producing our our medium series um the medium will get a lot of feedback shall we say from uh loved ones from the crew and she sort of like have to clear all that out like you know our network mm. executive got something from i think his father or grandfather and she would you know kind of eerily tell us things that you know, loved one, loved ones who have passed. Did did that happen to you during the course of filming? Did I, I can't imagine it didn't. Um, I would say it did, but it wasn't always. Um, I think so surprising or verified in the sense that I think sometimes a medium might know who the crew is, and if they're not being wholly honest, could look them up. Could you know? Um, so. I, I think when it's impressive and it's, and it's, you know, hopefully, um, you know, verified or honest is, is when the person, the medium has no knowledge of the person that they're receiving the messages from. And I think that's some of what we, what we get, get into in the series is that, you know, maybe mediumship more than other kinds of fields, um, will lend itself to fraudulent activity or sort of circus acts. But so you have to be protective of yourself. You know, you have to make sure you're not giving the medium any information about yourself. You maybe you use a fake, you know, email that you set up just for this purpose, or you have someone email for you if you're doing it, you know, via Skype or, you know, there's all different ways you can sort of protect yourself from having a false reading. And I think that's really important. You know, um, we, we don't, I don't want to run around and say, be saying, you know, like, oh, just call up any medium and, you know, give it a shot. No, absolutely. And I like that that one guy from New York was, was doing that. You know, he wasn't giving an inch because that does drive me crazy. I'm like, I'm getting a J and it's like, okay, <laughs> we all have J's. Let's, let's be real. So right. I have to talk to you about episode six because I just texted everybody like, I don't care if you don't watch the series, just please watch episode six because it will blow your mind. Um, so episode six is about reincarnation and the two stories that really stuck with me. I won't give too much away, but like basically one is um, a kid that basically was, you know, the soul or spirit of a of an old Hollywood actor was in him. And then another one was like this, um, this guy from, uh, World War II, like a, na a Navy pilot, I think. Pilot. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, just unbelievable. So I guess my question is, how did you feel about reincarnation in particular going into it? And then, um, how did you decide to include the stories that you did? I probably felt the same way about reincarnation that most Western people feel, which is, I really don't know much about it. Um, isn't that part of Eastern religion? You know, we, we don't talk about reincarnation in a serious way in the Western world. 
Um, but as I got into it, you know, you, you realize that culturally it's, it, it, there are places, um, you know, we go to Canada and there's some um, native community that, that believe in reincarnation and therefore, you know, take it seriously. So, so some of the big sort of the difficulty for Western doctor, this doctor who, who studies it um, at the uh, Division for Perceptual Studies, Dr. Tucker, is that people don't usually report these early, um, you know, children stories about, you know, feeling like there are other people, you know, they just sort of say, oh, sweetie, you know, go to sleep and stop talking about this guy. Whereas in other cultures that believe in reincarnation, there are many more stories. So that was one of the first, you know, difficult things is to find really good stories in the United States. Um, and the work that's being done um, at UVA, uh, really, we, we relied on on him because on this yeah. Dr. Tucker, but he's, he, he's he, been doing he's it. He's so credible. I mean, he, he really had a weight to him that I think you could buy into it. And it was so interesting that it sort of like happened in kids specifically, and then the sort of wore off, for lack of a better word. I mean, that that was so interesting. Well, what they also say is that, you know, a child having this memory is also easier to verify because they haven't necessarily watched a movie about World War II or they haven't read a book and then they're having these experiences. So, and they do tend, this is their study, they do tend to kind of surface in children and then they tend to just go away. So if it's not recognized by a parent early on and cataloged, in both of the cases that we go deep into, the mother you know, well, and then in the second case with the, um, the pilot, the father as well, you know, took serious notes when, when their child was reporting things, wrote down names, um, didn't, you know, both parents, sets of parents were, um, Christian religions and, you know, resisted the notion of reincarnation. And, um, but their child, their, you know, children had such strong experiences and such vivid memories that were coming through and they were, you know, not pleasant. They're problematic and destruct disturbing to the child that they couldn't really ignore the information. Yeah. That was so emotional. He's like, I want to see my kids again. Like this little kid is saying, I want to see my kids. That was yeah. wild, wild. I mean, going to California and meeting the daughter of um, Marty Martin, who was the, um, the man, the actor and agent who uh, was reincarnated was fascinating because, you know, she's probably just like all of us, like, you've got to be kidding me. This, this kid is my dad reincarnated. Right? I Come know. on now. That was but she, go, she goes through the list and, and I had to say to her, like, that's a lot that he had gotten right. And, and you have to remember that this, now, if you Google Marty Martin, he's all over the internet. Right. But, but he was like, know, a no what, like he was a bit nobody. Player. Yeah. yeah. No, no one that was written up, you know, and that you could easily locate, or they didn't even know his name was Marty Martin. That took some digging to figure out. It's so crazy. So, yeah. so kind of a side note, but of course I couldn't help but wonder because I've been talking to producers for the last, you know, 10 months. Was that meeting and like, were things filmed during the pandemic? When was this made? When was it? Just give me the timeline. I'm so curious how you, how you pulled it off. Um, it was mostly filmed. I would say 99.9% .9 of it was filmed before the pandemic. So we were in post and had been editing um, you know, through it, when March, when it really hit um, in New York. 
Um, but we did, we did have like a few little shoots, but yeah, all of that was before. And, and the timing, you know, people are like, oh, surviving death, how mm-hmm. appropriate. Well, we had no idea. I mean, right. it really, or just did say, you No, <laughs> <laughs> It was divine timing. So look, with these types of series and, and docs, you know, it, there's always that fear. I don't know fear, but, but it's a delicate balance in the, in sort of the visual language that it will veer off in like the cheesy direction. And, you know, it's very hard to sort of like visually represent this stuff. Um, but I think you did a beautiful job. How did you approach that whole, you know, sort of that, that feeling, that visual language of the whole series to kind of represent what people are talking about, what people were discussing. Yeah. And that, that, that was really important. Um, I definitely did not want it to go into the cheesy factor, you know, and feel cheap and feel silly. Um, you know, we work with a great DP, um, Nelson Hume and also Jonathan Nastasi. And they had, you know, we came up sort of with this visual language, which for me was about light and shadow and darkness and, um, and then worked with great people to create that feeling throughout and to, um, and then music was written by Paul Brill, who happens to be my cousin, but, um, you know, it really, the whole tone and atmosphere of the series was established beforehand. And that was really important. You know, you, you want to do justice to people's, you know, these are very profound experiences. They're not silly experiences. And we wanted to do justice. Jesse Sweet, the co-executive producer with me you know, um, wanted to make sure we represented what people were really seeing and feeling and experiencing. Whenever you do something like this, there's always something that gets cut. That's like painful for you, you know, like losing one of your limbs, but you, for what time or for story, you just can't include, is there something with this that still kills you that you couldn't include a story or, or something? Well, people always ask those kinds of questions and I never <laughs> have a good answer. Okay, well, that's um, good then. I probably... I probably blocked it. Right. Dad <laughs> you have to be ruthless. Well, right? you know, there, well there were definitely a, many more medium um, encounters that we filmed, um, people sharing their stories that I really did want to put in, you know, because, uh, for example, we had one story and a, a woman shared that her father had died and um, you know, and he had survived uh, World War II and he, his story was just so beautiful um, and certain bits came through for her. And I, I wish we could have gone there. And there was another one with a mom who lost her daughter at a very young age. And, you know, she was a beautiful little girl and the mom was so connected. And again, it was an emotional sort of reading, but we just I couldn't, you know, I couldn't put them all in. Yeah, I imagine. Um, I do want to move on, but I also want to thank you because, um, you know, I lost, um, a friend a few weeks ago, like right around the time I was watching this and it really did give me comfort. You know, I, like I said, I kind of always believed in this, but this did give me comfort that like, you know, there is another place that seems to be great. Like it seems to be really happy place. And so I think that, you know, I always well, say I'm always cautious about yeah. that because I, I don't want people to feel like, oh, the alternative is great. Well, if things get tough here. You know what I mean? I, I, I think. Right. I'm, OK, fair enough. I'm, I'm careful yeah. about saying that, 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting thing. I think it's a fear thing. I think it's more the, the just, you know, there's some people like my husband's uh, parents are terrified of death, you know, and they're both in their eighties and it's like, it's going to happen. So I think it's more like a, it's going to be okay. Like we want to be here. We want to be with the people Mm -hmm. we love, but like, Mm -hmm. we're all going to die. That is certain. And so that when we do, it's not going to, you know, unless it's, you know, you're the guy that just left office this morning, you're not going to go to the depths of hell. You're probably going (laughs) to, you know, so I guess it it is that fine line, like you said, but it, it, that to me just felt comforting. I I think it, you know, people are like friends of mine say like, oh, is it scary or is it depressing? Or I said, you know, I think it's hopeful, you know, not to say that that I want to create false hope. But I think the, if you, if you give yourself over to the people who've had these experiences through the various episodes, there is hope in, in their experiences. And I think that gives the audience hope, you know, because we don't really know. I mean, you might think, you know, but I don't think we really know. And I have plenty of doctor friends who are like, oh, I don't know. I'm like, just watch it and see if you don't feel just a sense of maybe there's something more that we should like allow ourselves to consider. Yeah. Again, I said that was the last question, but, but I'm glad you said that because I read, my husband and I read this book years ago called Proof of Heaven. Did you read that or do you know about it? No, but I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it was by a neuroscientist who, you know, Mm -hmm. it was like science, science, science. It's all a bunch of crap. And then he died for like three weeks and, and he wrote about his experience. And that was the first time that I really was like, Oh my God, this is insane because it was from a skeptic, you know, it was from someone mm-hmm. that was like, this is crazy. So anyway, I do recommend um, that book as well. It's, it's really, really interesting. So I do want to move on. I want to talk about uh, briefly surviving Jeffrey Epstein on lifetime, which I, I saw. Um, and again, really well done. That's a brutal story. I mean, really, really tough. How how did you approach that in terms of, you know, talking to survivors? It's you have to, I think, probably maybe more than anything that you've done, although I don't know. I would think that that has to be one of the hardest um, things to approach just to, you know, not only tell a story, but but talk to people that have been women, especially that have been through such trauma. Well, that series, um, I did with my film partner, Annie Sunberg, and, you know, we were on the phone and this is before COVID, but we did finish during COVID. Uh, we were on the phone with survivors and sometimes their lawyers and sometimes, you know, friends who represented them just talking to a range of women, um, before we, interviewed them. And I think, you know, we just established from the beginning that this is your story. We just want to help you get it out there. We want to facilitate, we want to capture it, you know, as honestly and profoundly as we can. And you are in charge. You're in charge. You say, no, you know, we'll ask questions and, or you can set boundaries before we even do the interview. Don't ask me about this. And I think that was liberating, not just to them, but for us to say, we're all on the same page, you know, and we're all in this together. And if I ask you a question that's too raw or too hard for you or too rough, you know, it's not because I'm, you know, it's just, let's move on. Let's know that we're doing this together to, to represent the, the most accurate and 
story. And again, the, the reason these women wanted to share their stories, there's a range of reasons, but generally they wanted to either make sure that other young people who found themselves vulnerable in, in situations similar to theirs wouldn't be subjected to such sexual, you know, the sexual abuse that they found themselves subjected to. Um, they would know what a grooming means. They would understand their, their own vulnerabilities. And they also wanted to make sure that the, the truth was out there because for so long, you know, Jeffrey Epstein and Elaine Maxwell got away with a, a lot and many people covered for them and enabled them. So this, because he had killed himself when we started filming, uh, Jeffrey Epstein had killed himself, you know, this gave him an opportunity to say what they couldn't, they weren't going to have a chance to say in the court of law. And now ultimately, who knows what will happen with Ghislaine Maxwell and if there will be a trial. Some of these women, not all of them, you know, were abused by her, but some of them were, and they might have that opportunity to make it public, um, you know, in, the, in that case. God, I hope so. I mean, look, you're you're a filmmaker, but you're also a human being. And, and I know for myself, I, I'm not the best compartmentalizer. Um, when you do something like this, like how do you stay sane and not just like, I don't know, fold like a, into a heap of like rage or depression. Cause it's just, I know watching it, how, how do I even wrap my brain around this? It's so funny. I always was like, ah. you know, years ago, Annie and I did a film called, um, uh, devil came on horseback, which is about this, the genocide in Darfur in Sudan. And, you know, the images were just horrific and the stories and, and, you know, people would say, oh, you know, gosh, or we did the Boston marathon documentary for HBO. People would say, you know, how do you go to sleep at night? How do, and I would say, I know, you know, I'm, I'm, I can handle this. And then I realized, oh, that's right. During my Darfur document when we were shooting that and editing it, I basically dreamed of bombs dropping every single day. You know, my dreams reflected a lot. And I think when we were doing Jeffrey Epstein, I would have pretty awful kind of sordid dreams that were just, you know, that came up. Um, and I think for me, that's, that's where they come. Otherwise during the day, you know, between your work and your family and all the rest, you just get on with it. And you also have an obligation to your, to your subjects. Like you're, you're telling their story. So it, you can't get too emotionally invested in your own, you know, the way you process it. And as we mentioned, you did the preppy murder for AMC, which was so well done. And, and Elliot and I, for those people who want to go give it a listen, we, we did a pretty deep dive on it. Um, and, you know, again, thank you for that because I felt like Jennifer, you know, her, her story and, and hearing from her mother and her sister, their story finally got told because I lived through that. I mean, you know, I lived in New York and Jennifer and I were around the same age and, and the way that it was portrayed was just disgusting. Um, what is it that, that attracts you? Like what makes you decide to do a series or a doc? You know, is there some unifying thing or is it just sort of like whatever interests you? Because you look at something like, the Joan Rivers doc, which probably my top five favorite documentaries ever. And again, captive audience, because I'm a huge Joan fan, love her. Um, you know, that was poignant for sure. But but Joan's a comedian. She's hilarious. And that was lighter um, and had a sort of a different vibe. So so what is it that you think sort of like unites all of your work if there is something? I would say character. Um, my background, I, I came from theater more than film, but then I 
after, you know, sort of in my early twenties, I, I made a film for PBS and um, realized that the way in which I could tell stories was by going deep with character and characters. And so I think that, you know, all the films I do, I, I you know, I, I'm mostly attracted to whatever this story is, you know, it can be a complex issue. Like we did a film called Reversing Row about abortion politics, but I'm interested in the people that, it, that live it, you know, and experience it. And so, you know, for Preppy Murder, I actually did, I knew Robert Chambers growing up. So. Um, oh, wow. Did you grow up in Manhattan? I did. I grew wow. up in Manhattan. Wow. And so. Did you um, go to Dorian's? I knew Michael Dorian. Uh, the, he was the son of John Dorian. Um, I, I don't, I mean, have I gone there? Yes. Did I go there at that crowd? No, but um, no. I'm a little bit older than he was. And that crowd was younger anyway, but um uh, so that was what attracted me to that story in particular. I was like, I know New York in the eighties. I grew up in New York in the eighties and I, and I knew Robert Chambers. Um, and so part of the, what was he access, like? Sorry. Just what, like, yeah. what was your perception of him back then before all that happened? He was just quiet. He was a quiet kind of tall, maybe a little bit brooding. He was probably sad, you know, person, I, I would say, um, but a lot of the guys I knew and he hung out with were kind of dark. You know, they were going through, there was, they were troubled. There was a lot of drugs. They didn't come from families, you know, that were necessarily stable. And, and this isn't an excuse for what he did at all. I'm just telling you, you know, what my impressions of him were. And, and we hung out pretty serious, like as friends, you know, with a group of friends pretty regularly. I pretty much, I can't quite remember much, you know, because he was very quiet. Um, but the the access we had in the series was based on, you know, people that I grew up with and Annie as well had gone to college with um, his high school girlfriend. So who, who went on to be an actor, right? Yes. I kind of, I kind of deep dived yes. on her a little bit after. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. So, I mean, and then, you know, Surviving Jeffrey Evans is similar. Like we, we were very interested in having, giving the women and going and meeting the women and talking to them about their experience. And with Joan, if, if you want me to talk about Joan, um, you know, Joan was interesting because we had just done The Devil Came on Horseback, which was, you know, serious. And, you know, again, based on this one young former U.S. Marine captain who had been in Darfur, um, and I was talking to my mother who was, who was friends with Joan Rivers and said, you know, you really should spend time with her. She's just like people, she, she really is this kind person. She's this person, she's so the antithesis of her stage character. Um, he, there's just something amazingly interesting about her. And, you know, I, I kind of like the next day literally went up there and sat with her I didn't really know her at all. I think I had met her once and said, would you be interested if I did this documentary about you? And she, first of all, she sat on a little stool at my feet. And there was, this, I mean, it was such a power. It was a, like Joan. I now, I now I know that was giving me the power. But, um, you know, there was such an openness and vulnerability about her. Uh, and I just thought, oh, you know, this is a person I don't know at all. And I wanted to know. And I also loved 
that she's just so, she was such a hard worker. She was so dedicated to her craft, and she broke so many you know boundaries. And you know, and but people love to hate her. You know, she was controversial, and frankly, nobody would wanted me to do that film. Like I couldn't get that film made. I ended up doing it myself. Oh, that makes and me furious. She's an icon legend. Yeah, but she was pretty much ostracized and she was on the outs for a very long time, you know? I interviewed Melissa um, for one of my podcasts and I think I spent like 20 minutes just going off on how much I love Joan. <laughs> um, I'll never forget that scene in the back of the taxi or the back of the town car with her with her grandson, like still moves me to tears just thinking about it. That stayed with me the most of everything. Yeah, no, it's so true. And that that was, you know, there was this, kind of you know well it's it was a kind of loneliness or sadness that drove her to keep the audience happy which you know to walk down the street with her everyone would stop her and she always had the time for everyone you know she understood what it was to be a celebrity and and was gracious about it like if people came up and you were having dinner she would never say no i'm having dinner like she never was guarded and that was, I, I found that really attractive about her, that she was so appreciative of everything she had earned. Yeah. And was such a hard worker till the bitter end. I mean, she was yeah. such a workhorse, so inspirational. So yeah. I have to ask you an annoying question and, and I always, I never know how to ask it without sounding annoying. So I'm going to do my best, which is about being a female filmmaker, mm-hmm. um, a, a female, mm-hmm. <laughs> a woman, um, mm-hmm. you know, I guess the question really is, do you feel like, I mean, look, you're, you have an incredible body of work. You've been doing this a long time. Um, I'm sure you can have the luxury at this point of, of, of turning down jobs on the regular, you know, to just do what you really feel passionate about. Do you feel in this industry, any pushback or are you up against any glass ceiling as a woman, or has that been a factor at all in your career? And again, if that's too annoying, I get it. I never know. No, I, I want to know, not. but I never know how to ask it. No, it's, it's, I think you asked it totally appropriately. And first of all, I would say, I don't ever feel I have the luxury. I feel like I'm, <laughs> okay. like, I'm like Joan out there, which is like, when's the next job coming my way? And <laughs> so you never just, know. I, I would have I assumed have, you have, do. No, I mean, I have people I work with who, you know, who I feel like rely on my ability to bring the next series in or something. And so I feel an obligation um, and it's, you know, and, and, and it's a joy to have the opportunity to work with these people. So, um, I'm always thinking about what am I going to do next? Um, so, um, uh, but I would say, I think at the beginning, it was interesting. Uh, uh, people would uh, ask that question like, oh, as women filmmakers, and I would say, you know, how about just saying I'm a filmmaker? Why do I have to be a woman filmmaker? But, you know, I think in hindsight, yeah. Um, when I was in my twenties and my dear friend from college, who's a man, uh, you know, we went out and shot this film. I couldn't go have a beer. I didn't feel comfortable going to have a beer one-on-one with the older gentleman DP director of photography on my film. I felt, you know, Oh, he's going to think I'm coming on to him or like, Oh, it's weird for me to go out with an older guy just at a, you know what I mean? I couldn't have that same easy rapport. I felt at least no, you know, maybe I was limiting myself. I don't know. It's just, it is a bit, it was a bit of a boys club. It certainly still is, I think. And so whatever that boys club 
thing is, um, can make it hard at times. Now, I think now, you know, people are looking toward to women filmmakers because they either have a subject like Jeffrey Epstein, where they're like, you know, we need women to make this, you know, which doesn't always happen. There were certainly men who made films or stories about Jeffrey Epstein. So, um, but it does change the POV. I'm so glad you said that because when Elliot told me that it was two women directors for, for the preppy murder, I was like, thank God, because it's going to be different. But does it? Okay. I think it does. It's subtle. I think it's subtle, but even in sitcom, I'm at the point where I can Mm -hmm. even tell in a sitcom if it's created by a man or a woman, it's just different. Interesting. And that's my opinion. I mean, you know, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that if you look at like, um, Catherine Bigelow and like her, um, breakout film. Um, what was it called? Um, the one with, um, George Iraq. Clooney and Nicole. Oh, that one. Um, yeah. God, didn't it win the with Oscar? Jer- Jeremy Full Renner. Metal, yeah. No, right. With the one with, yeah. The, the yeah. Osama Jer- bin Laden Raid and yeah. I yeah. She, um, with Jeremy Renner, she, um, I don't think you would have known that a woman made that. The subject matter was very masculine. It was a war film. You know, it was, you know, you know, you maybe if you deconstruct it, you'd say, oh, but it was about the emotional and, you know, like intensity of this man experiencing having to be a, you know, a bomb, you know. Hurt locker. Whatever. Hurt locker. Yeah. I, I, I just don't, I don't, I don't, I honestly, I don't know if gender um, impacts how you tell your stories or if it's your life experience because of your, you know, because of your gender, you know, so as a woman growing up, I was formed and shaped in a certain way. And therefore the way I tell stories is a certain way. I just don't like to have it be about gender, quite honestly. Yeah. And then in terms of, um, the story, the stories that you choose or that you gravitate toward, toward, does it, is it like, you know, I want to tell more women's stories or is it? No, it's actually been the opposite. I would (laughs) say my first film was about a wrongfully convicted African-American man in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, uh, mostly men. And, you know, there was a woman reporter who broke, broke some, some profound stuff, but, you know, I would say, and then like we did a film about knuckleball pitchers, you know, all men, um, I did a film called In My Father's House about a rapper in Chicago and his homeless father. You know, lots of male-driven, masculine kinds of stories. Um, I actually sort of shy. I think I wasn't that interested in women's stories, quite (laughs) honestly. I I don't know why. Because we were brainwashed by the patriarchy. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. I mean, I was attracted to Joan because it was Joan. I think I'm just attracted to the individuals, individuals and great stories, yeah. Great. Well, everyone can find um, Surviving Death on Netflix and can look up um, your other, uh, what well, your your website is Breakthrough Films? Yeah, it's spelled, do you want to spell it? Yeah, it's and I'm going to put it on the show notes as well. Okay, it's it's Breakthrough, but through is T-H-R-U film. Which is how I spell it on my text, you know, with the slang. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then are you a social media person should we follow can we follow not really okay you're staying hidden people people are (laughs) trying people are following my instagram which i don't even know what means or whatever my twitter and i'm like people i'm never gonna post (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) okay well good to know i'll still tag you you never know um and i'm really appreciative it was so great to quote unquote meet you and and thank you for all of your great work and i hope i'm looking forward to whatever you do next 
Oh, thank you so much. It was, it was fun to talk with you and um, yeah. And good luck on, on your, on all the work you're doing. It's, thank it's a great you. Project. Thank you. Thank you.